We left off last time. We covered really the first part of chapter 9. And just to give you a little bit of background, since it's been a couple weeks, chapter 9 is the miraculous conversion of who? Saul of Tarsus, who came to be Paul the Apostle. Now, chapter 9, there's a breaking point in it. The first part deals with his miraculous conversion on the road to Damascus. I was just a few miles from Damascus the other day. It just sounds kind of funny to say it. But the rest of the this chapter and the rest of the book of Acts, and indeed most of the New Testament epistle, is the result of that conversion. It's the unfolding testimony of a man who's been changed by God. Now, the next several verses, and really the rest of the chapter, you could look at it and give it a title. A man who's been changed by God. That's what Paul the Apostle was. You know, I've heard this quote before, and I kind of like it. Somebody says, well, how, how do you know you were saved? Well, that's easy. I was there when it happened. And what that means is, I have experienced changes in my life that I know personally could not have taken place outside of the work of God. And while that's a wonderful thing to say, there must be more to Christianity than that. In other words, there must be changes that other people see in you. See, you can testify all you want about what you have experienced, but other people who know you must be able to see the resulting changes from the conversion commitment that you have made. In other words, the proof is in the pudding. Faith without works is dead. A tree is known by its fruit, Jesus said. James in his little epistle said, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. In other words, real faith works. Well, how do you know that that's a car? Because it works. I turn it on. It works. And so you know that you have a real Christian faith because it produces it's operating, it's working, it's more than just lip service. Bob Jones Jr. said, A faith that has not changed your life has not saved your soul. It changed Paul's life. He was a radical unbeliever. He became a radical believer. One time in a meeting, in a large auditorium packed full of people, a socialist, a communist, was giving a speech. And the socialist stood up and he was trying to persuade people to follow his way of life. He said, socialism will put a new coat on a man. And a Christian who was in the audience stood up and he shouted back, socialism may put a new coat on a man, but Jesus Christ puts a new man in the coat. Oh, that's exactly what he does. Saul of Tarsus became known as Paul the Apostle. He got a whole new identity because he was completely different. Now, this process is called sanctification. That's the fancy title that uh, the Bible gives it and theologians give. The process of changes that take place from the moment you're saved until you go to be with the Lord. You go through a, a stage, a series of processes, molding, where the Holy Spirit works on you, chisels away. Now, the Holy Spirit does a pretty good job. Some of you are harder to work with than others. But the Holy Spirit is still committed to changing you. The process of sanctification. That happens after salvation. In other words, you're never more saved later than you are now. 
You don't get degrees of salvation. You're saved. The moment you say, Jesus, save me, forgive me of my sins. I want to be born again. I turn my life over to you. Boom, you're saved. Now, in five years, you're not more saved. But you are different, I hope. And if you're truly saved, you will truly be different. In some ways, God will change your life. You won't be more saved, but you will be different. If you fall into a river and somebody, as you're drowning, saves you, He pulls you out of the water. You're saved from drowning. In another month, you won't be more saved than you were a month before. But you won't be wet any longer and you'll probably stay away from rivers. And you'll look at life differently and you'll act differently and you'll be safer. And so it is with those people who have come to know the Lord. There's a process of sanctification that takes place. And God hammers away at you. Now, some of those changes take time. And some of you have been struggling with sins and strongholds in your life for a long time. But you're seeing a little bit more of victory as the days go by. Others see changes immediately. And I think all of us could fit into both those categories. There's things in my life that it's taken a long time for the Lord to work on. He's still working on them. I still am amazed at his patience. I think, don't you give up? I mean, I've blown it in this area for so long, but you're so patient. But there are other changes in my life that I've witnessed take place immediately. The moment I gave my life to the Lord, I started having a hunger to know Him more. I started having a hunger for the things of God. I wanted to read the Bible. You couldn't pay me to read the Bible a month before I knew the Lord. I thought, oh, it's all Greek to me. It's boring. I couldn't understand it. I have no desire to know about it. Hey, do you want to go to church? No! But when I gave my life to the Lord, I started gaining new appetites. And those things that I held on to as dear at one time, I was less satisfied with. Have you noticed that? It's like you get a new appetite and the old things of the world, it's like, no, they just don't have their attraction anymore. I'm really desiring to know Christ, to be conformed into his image. Well, Saul of Tarsus becomes Paul the Apostle and he experiences this process. And I'd like you to look at these next ten verses and see the way God changed Saul of Tarsus into Paul the Apostle. Now, keep something in mind. He had a radical experience of salvation. He had an experience that most of you don't have. And some people feel cheated, actually. I never really had a Damascus Road experience, they'll say. But keep in mind that Paul was a radical unbeliever, probably more radical than most of you. He was a religious fanatic bent on killing Christians. How many of you, before you were saved, that was your occupation, to hunt down Christians and kill them? And so it took a dramatic work of God to get his attention. You know, some people are just boneheaded. They're just strong-willed. They're just bent on evil. And God loves them so much, he'll smack them upside the head to get their attention. Well, no, you know, Saul wouldn't listen to anyone until he's flat on his back, kicked off of his horse or his mule, and he's looking up into heaven and he goes, All right, uncle, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. All right, you got my attention. What do you want me to do? And from that moment on, his life was changed. And I want you to notice the dramatic changes that have taken place in this man's life. The first change, let's call it proclamation. He wanted to tell others about Christ. Look at verse 20. 
immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God. He wanted other people to know about the same thing he experienced. He wasn't an Inspector Clouseau Christian. He wasn't a private eye believer. He wasn't the kind who wanted to cloak his Christianity and say, well, you know, I'm going to be a Christian, but I don't want anybody to find out. He wanted others to find out. The best definition of evangelism I've ever heard is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Hey, I'm starving to death. Oh, hey, I found bread over here. Come on. And Saul of Tarsus found what changed his life and he wanted others to know about it. You know, we see this all the way throughout the scripture. Remember the angels came to the shepherds and they got their attention. They were just out herding their sheep and the angels spoke from heaven with a shining light. The angels were afraid and or the shepherds were afraid. Angels don't get afraid of shepherds. And the shepherds, as they were afraid, the angels spoke to them and said, Don't be afraid. I bring you good tidings of great joy, which is for all people. For to you this day in the town of Bethlehem is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Well, as soon as they went and they saw Jesus in the manger, it says, when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. William Barclay said the possession of good news involves the obligation to share it. You know how many of us say, I have found the truth. I don't need to seek anymore. I found the truth. I'm saved. Are you really convinced of that, that you found the truth? Because if you really have found the truth, are you letting other people who haven't found the truth about the same truth that you have found that's changed your life? And you know what? It's more than a duty. It's not an obligation. It's a privilege to share in his work. Oh, it's witnessing night at the church. We pass out tracts. Oh, boring. I'll go. All right. It's my Christian duty. Hey, stay home and watch Gunsmoke or something then. It's a privilege to do it. There came a point in Jeremiah's ministry where he decided, I quit the ministry. Here's my ordination certificate. I'm off the payroll, God. He said, I quit because of the persecution. He said, I will not make mention of him or speak any more in his name. But the very next phrase, but his word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones and I was weary of holding it back and I could not. Immediately he preached, Jesus is the Christ. It was an immediate thing. He automatically went out to tell others. You know, when we take people in the prayer room, when they give their life to Jesus, we tell them what it takes to grow and to be a strong Christian. And one of the things we tell them is that they should go and tell someone that they made a commitment to Jesus. Call somebody up on the phone that night or the next day or the next week, a friend, a family member, and tell them, I want, you, I want to let you know what happened to me. I gave my life to Jesus Christ the other night. I've surrendered to him. He's now my Lord. He's changing me. It solidifies what's in you. It builds the excitement of the commitment that you've made. Jesus took his disciples. And first of all, he said, now look at the harvest. It's ready to be picked. Pray that the Lord would send out harvesters out into the field. And then he sent them out after they prayed for it. He said, all right, I'll answer your prayer. Go. And he said, as you go preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Folks, there's no substitute for verbally sharing the word of God with people. 
You say, well, isn't it just best to pass out tracts or have them turn into Christian television? Well, Jesus didn't say, as you go, tell them to tune into Christian television. Or as you go, pass a tract to them. Though those are viable methods and means of getting the gospel out. But there's no substitute for you verbalizing what has happened in your life and sharing the Word of God to them. Because the Word of God is powerful. It's alive. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It cuts. It convicts. It makes a difference. People think about it. And it penetrates their heart. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every living creature. Now that's a commission given to all of us. That you and I are to go. You know, that's so important. Now some might be saying, and certainly I'd be among those some, God hasn't called me to go into all the world. God hasn't called me to go to Malaysia. God hasn't called me to go to Thailand or to Jordan. Hey, fine. But you might say, God hasn't called me, but I'm willing to support others who go. Fine. But just because God hasn't called you to go out into all the world, don't use that as an excuse to not go across the street and tell somebody, that's part of the world too, that Jesus Christ changed your life. Now notice it says he went into the synagogue and preached that Jesus is the Christ. Why a synagogue? Why didn't Paul just go door to door? Simply because he was a Jew. This was his territory. It was familiar territory. He went to the people who knew him best. He went back to his religious background and shared the gospel. You know, as we share the gospel in all of the world, we can never neglect our own backyard. We have a responsibility to those who live in this town, who work with us, as well as people on the other side of the world. They're just as needy. And while we're in the process of looking to evangelize the world, don't forget the people who are around you. I love that story in the Gospels where the demon-possessed man was freed from his demons and he comes up to Jesus and he said, I'm going to follow you. And Jesus says, go home and tell your family the good things that I've done for you. And he was commissioned to go back and share. Took guts to go into the synagogue. It certainly would have been easier for Paul to witness elsewhere to people who didn't know him because he would have less less to risk he didn't have his past to stand against him but why did he go back to the people who knew him to his spiritual family as it were because he wanted the people who knew him best to know best what happened to him you know it's the hardest thing to share the gospel with your family and your friends or people from your old church who aren't Christians. It's hard. I find it much easier to share with people who don't know me that well. When I first was saved and I went back to my family, hey, they watched me grow up. Mom, I'm a Christian. You're my son. Brother, I'm a Christian. You're my brother. You're a flake. I watched you grow up. I watched you stub your toe. You're telling me that I ought to get saved? What are you, holier than thou? More righteous than I am? The first thing I did was share with my family. The second thing I did was share with my friends. None of them understood. The third thing I did was I went back to my church because they invited me. And I shared with them the gospel. And they asked me not to come back, actually. It's difficult to do it, but it's important to do it. And Paul went to the synagogue first and he preached the gospel. The first result, proclamation. 
The second result of a changed life? Perplexity. Look at verse 21. And then all who heard were amazed. Look what they said. Isn't this the one who destroyed those who call on this name in Jerusalem? He has come here for that purpose that he might bring them bound to the chief priest. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. They were all amazed. You know what? That ought to be the reaction of unbelievers when they see your life. People who knew you before you were saved, they ought to see the results and be amazed. You know, there's a lot of unbelievers who see no difference when a person says, I'm now a Christian, because that Christian often cheats and he lies and he acts lewd and he says horrible things and the unbelieving world looks at him and says, I don't see a difference. Well, the unbelieving world ought to be a little bit amazed because they saw Paul, Saul of Tarsus, who was a persecutor, and they thought, oh, this guy was a radical and now he's a Christian. He's preaching the things he killed against. And they were all amazed at him. What do you think it would have been like as a Jew to sit in that synagogue in Damascus as Paul came in that Saturday morning to give a sermon? Now, if you were a hardcore Jewish person who hated those believers in Judaism who were becoming a Christian, you thought, all right, Saul of Tarsus is here from Jerusalem. He's going to give it to him. I heard about this man. I am sure they were just blown away to hear his message that Saturday morning in Damascus. It's like the businessman in the mid-1800s who was traveling from the East Coast to the West Coast. And he heard about a guy named Charles Finney. He heard of Charles Finney because Charles Finney was an antagonistic, unbelieving lawyer. And God converted him and changed him. And he was the, one of the greatest revivalist preachers of the 1800s. He said, I went into the church. I sat in the back row. And as Finney spoke, it was this as if the hair on my head stood straight up. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. There was such conviction in it. They were all amazed that they saw what happened to Saul. So, there was proclamation. There was perplexity as they saw the changes. But there was another change. Look at the next verse. Verse 22, there was power. It says, But Saul increased all the more in strength, and he confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. He gained power, strength. And I think that means power to live the Christian life. Power over sin. Victory over the old life. And increasing more and becoming more adept in the Word. And growing toward maturity. You know, it's like learning to use a sword. At first, if you've ever tried to wield a sword before, it's not that easy. You stumble around at it, but the more you do it, the more strength you get in your arm and your wrist, and you get pretty good at it. I traded some old books that I had for, to a staff member for a sword that he found at a pawn shop. And I had this in my office. I thought, I want it. this looks pretty easy. And I started flipping it around in my office, and I found that if you were to sword fight me, you'd win. Because I don't know how to do it. I'm just awkward and uncoordinated, and it takes some strength in the wrist that I don't have. But the more you practice at it and the more you go, you increase more in strength. And here's Saul of Tarsus, Paul, increasing more in strength. Everybody starts the Christian life as a baby. Don't forget that. Don't expect a baby to be Joe Mature two weeks after he makes a commitment. Give him time to grow. But make sure that you do grow. Don't just be content staying a baby Christian. 
Our goal should be maturity. You know, I remember as a young Christian, I had an excuse. And since then, I've heard the same excuse by many others. Well, I'm just a young Christian. I don't know the Bible. Well, learn it. You got one? You've got Christian radio. You've got tapes in this country, books. There's no excuse. You can grow as quickly as you want to. You can become as mature as you want to be. The question is, how mature do you want to be? Of course, the real question is, what really is a mature Christian? You know, a lot of people will use that and say, well, you know, we all want to be mature, which usually means like me. I'm mature, they're not, because they don't agree with my stance. A Christian leader gave this definition. I think it's the best. Christian maturity is simply being a responsible son or daughter of God. The mature in Christ are people who have stopped being concerned about their own needs and pursuits and have entered into a global vision of their father so that they may transform a hurting world. The mature go out as agents. In order to accomplish the aims of the Lord's prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Fourth mark of a changed man, persecution. It says in verse 23, Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Here's a guy who was killing Christians. He's converted. He preaches Christ. Now the Jews want to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They watched the gates day and night to kill him. And the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. Why is persecution a mark of a changed life? Does it really have to be? I mean, come on, can't you get out of persecution? Isn't there a way to avoid it? Yes, certainly, there really is. You want to know how? Don't tell anybody that you're a Christian. Don't live the Christian life. Put your light under a basket. Hide it. Conform to the world. Be like they are. You won't be persecuted. Oh, they'll slap you on the back, think you're the greatest. Walk the straight and narrow. They may respect you. They may love you because you're the best worker at work. But you're going to get hassled a little bit. You'll get persecuted. Why? Because there's danger in being a Christian, in shining your light. Goodness has a dangerous side. Light exposes darkness. And when darkness is exposed, darkness cries and screams and doesn't like the light. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Neither will they come to the light lest their deeds be exposed, Jesus said. So if you turn on your little Christian light wherever you are, you expose them. It makes them feel worse and they don't like you. Solution, get rid of you. Cause you to not shine your light. But if you do shine your light... You'll pay for it somehow. Jesus said, blessed. Oh, how happy are those who are persecuted. But he said, for righteousness sake. In other words, make sure that you're persecuted for the right reason. The scripture never condemns or commends, never commends weirdness in the name of Christ. It never commends obnoxiousness in the name of Christ. Don't look for persecution. You know, there, are, there is a certain group, I'll tell you who they are, they're the Jehovah Witnesses, a non-Christian cult. Great, we got it out in the open. They knock on doors, 
They have smiles. They have suits. They pass out literature. They often sound like Christians. And if you don't receive them, they kind of revel in the fact that they're being persecuted for righteousness sake. They're not. They're being persecuted for false doctrine's sake. And if you say, you know what, that's unbiblical, that's wrong, and you're going to have to pay a price if you keep teaching that. You're leading people to say, oh, I'm persecuted for righteousness sake. I had a guy tell me, they said, I just thank God that right now as you're speaking to me, I'm being persecuted for righteousness sake. I said, you are not. And as Christians, we ought to make sure if we get any flack, it's because it's for the gospel's sake. Not because we shove things down people's throat. Or because we yell at them as they drive by or stand on a street corner and yell at them to make them feel inferior. Oh, well, we shared the gospel. And people will think you're a weirdo. You know, Paul the Apostle talked about those who have a zeal with no knowledge. You can be all zealous and hot-headed and... You don't know anything. Make sure that you're persecuted for righteousness sake. I told you the story before of John Wesley, great evangelist, who rode his horse around England. There was a time when he wasn't getting hassled. Nobody beat him up. Nobody cursed him. And he was riding his horse. He got off his horse. He said, I got to kneel down and talk to God about it. He said, God, have I fallen away? Have I done something wrong? I haven't been persecuted lately. And just then, somebody saw him and he said, that's John Wesley, that crazy evangelist. He started throwing rocks at him. (laughs) And Wesley was said to look up into heaven and say, God, thank you that I haven't lost your presence. So persecuted was that man that the absence of it caused him to wonder. Now, I just want you to notice before we move on, Verse 25. I like this. The disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. I imagine that was quite a thrill for Paul. To be let down a city wall. We're not talking a six-foot little wall out back of your housing development. We're talking the wall of the city that was up to maybe even a 100 feet tall. Being let down in a large basket probably a garbage basket on ropes, let down to the outside of the city so you could escape. I'm sure that would make a great testimonial. And don't you think people would revel in hearing, you know, a few years ago, I was so persecuted, they took me in a garbage basket, dumped me over the wall, and whoo. But you know what's amazing? Paul never mentioned this. Ever. We never read of Paul going around the Roman Empire telling people about how he was let down from a basket in Damascus. You know why I bring that up? Because a lot of people are given to sensationalism. A lot of testimonies are bragamonies. And we love the ooh, sensationalism. Instead of simply, I was not a Christian. I was a creep. God saved me. I love Him. He's changing me. I want to serve Him. He just, he just never mentioned, never brought attention to this. Now, look at the next verse, verse 26. When Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. But they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. We have in that verse the fifth mark of a changed man, and that is participation. He tried to join the church. He didn't make it, but at least he tried. He saw the necessity of participating with other believers in a local church worship assembly and atmosphere. 
He proclaimed the gospel. He caused perplexity. He was persecuted. But he was participating with the early church. He tried to join himself to the Christian. Every now and then I meet a, what I call a John Wayne believer. I say, why a John Wayne? Because John Wayne had this independent image. Kind of like, I don't need people. I'm my own man. I'm the pioneer, the rugged individual. Get out of my life. I'll be fine. Every now and then I meet a Christian like that. Says he's a believer. I don't really belong to any particular church. In fact, I don't go to one particular church for very long. You know why? It's because they don't want to be vulnerable. They don't want to open themselves out. They're afraid that they're going to be rejected. They're afraid to get close to people, so they hop around town and hop around from church to church, but they never really join an assembly or participate in it. Christians are never to be independent, always dependent upon one another. As members of a body, as parts of a body, feed one another and are codependent. Christ designed the body of Christ that way. And Paul the Apostle, even though some of us have this idea that he was this rugged, I don't need anybody individual, he was not. He always had a team with him. He never even traveled alone. He had Barnabas, or he had Silas, or he had Timothy, or he had Luke, and oftentimes they all traveled together as a team. Think of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Certainly he didn't need anybody, but he chose 12 to be with him. He used their companionship. He spread his work to them. He prayed with them. They were a team. And participation is one of the marks of a Christian. A couple of weeks ago, I talked to this person. She said, you know, I, aren't you Skip? I said, yes. I used to go to Calvary Chapel. Really? Where do you go now? Not that it's a big deal. I just want to make sure she's going somewhere. She goes, oh, I don't go anywhere. What's that? I'm not really going anywhere right now. Really? One of the marks of conversion is participation. You join other people. You're not left alone. And finally, number six is perseverance. Notice the next few verses. It said, they were all afraid of him and did not believe he was a disciple. You can understand that. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And we'll deal more with Barnabas later on in the book of Acts. And he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And so he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed among the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. Poor guy. He's in Damascus, tries to go to the synagogue, tells people about Jesus. They try to kill him. Goes over the wall in a basket. Goes to Jerusalem. Hey, church, I'm a Christian. We don't believe you. So he goes and preaches to the Hellenists. They try to kill him. And so when the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And the churches throughout all of Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. However, this isn't the end of the story. For we see Saul of Tarsus, Paul the Apostle, emerge once again, actually in the same book. And he carries on a terrific ministry. He didn't give up. There was enough to make him discouraged after he made a commitment to Christ. I mean, if we went with the philosophy that we had to go with the flow because that's always God's will, Paul would have given up. Lord, I'm just going to go with your flow. Open up doors. They try to kill him. Christians won't believe him. 
More people try to kill him. They send him off to Tarsus. You think, all right, I give up. But he kept going. He refused to get discouraged. Let me ask you a question. What would it take to make you stop following Jesus wholeheartedly? Is there something or someone in a relationship or a situation that would cause the wind to go out of your sails and you to say, I'm taking my football and go home? This guy kept going. And 30 years after this event, in the book of Philippians, he spoke about his conversion and he said, you know what, guys? I counted all things but loss. And today I still count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. I made a commitment 30 years ago. I'm sticking with it. I'm enduring it. Don't forget, today's mighty oak is yesterday's nut that held its ground. Well, that's a great saying. I didn't come up with it. I just copied it off of somebody else's page. But it's a great saying. Today's mighty oak is yesterday's nut that held its ground. Actually, God held on to you. A lot of us are like little nuts, aren't we? Hang in there. How do you become a mature Christian? Hang in there. Oh, but it's getting tough. Hang in there. Oh, but my wife left me. Hang in there. Jesus is coming. Hang in there. Nehemiah was building a wall. Sanballat and Tobiah started saying, you'll never finish. It's not the will of the king. It's not the will of God. You might as well give up. If you don't, you'll be persecuted. We're going to get you. It says Nehemiah kept building. He didn't even turn around and argue with him. He just kept building. He kept at it. Change is a word that should characterize our lives. More than just a first commitment to a conversion experience, it goes on, doesn't it? John said, I have no greater joy than to know that my children walk in the truth and continue in the truth. But you know, also in closing, I'm thinking about Saul of Tarsus, a very gifted man, very driven man, a guy filled with convictions, talent. And I think, you know, there's still a lot of Saul of Tarsuses out there in this world. Very talented, educated, driven, filled with conviction, but seriously mistaken. A lot of drive and conviction, some very religious, but still hardened toward a personal walk with Jesus. Cold when it comes to a walk with the living God. Oh, they still go to church. But you see, they're going from Jerusalem to Damascus when they should be going from Damascus to Jerusalem. Saul started going from Jerusalem to Damascus. He was angry. He was against God. But he ended up going from Damascus to Jerusalem, a changed man. Some of you are going the wrong direction. People have brought you to church. They've shared the gospel with you. God has spoken to your heart, but you've turned it off. And the more you turn it off, the easier it gets to reject Him. Until pretty soon, you may not even hear His voice if you keep putting off what the Holy Spirit's trying to do in your life. He's trying to get you to go to Jerusalem. You're, I'm going to Damascus. I'm mad. I'm not going to give in. I'm going to hold out. One person said, and I agree with them, it's better to have never been born at all than never to have been born again.
This is the age of grace. It's coming to a close very soon. Jesus is coming and the age of grace will be shut. The book will be closed. The tribulation will begin. The days are hard. Oil prices are high. A war is going to break out. But it's, it seems it is going to get worse. Jesus predicted before it gets better, it's going to get worse. Today's the age of grace. Would you accept him now? He's asking you to have a personal relationship with him. Would you quit putting it off? Would you surrender your life to him tonight? If you haven't made that commitment, I'm going to ask anyone who hasn't made that to make that tonight. Let's bow our heads and pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the work of unmerited favor that you've shown to us. Grace. We don't deserve what you've given to us, but you give it so freely. Lord, you extend forgiveness of sin, new hope, purpose, real settled purpose. Father, it is my prayer at this moment that as you graciously extend your hand into the hearts of those people who have not surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ, that they would respond by reaching out their hand to you and grabbing a hold of it, that they might be saved from the drowning sea. I pray, Lord, that they won't hold on to their own ability or their own pride as they simply float by and say, I'll make it. Lord, grab them and save them. As you continue to pray in a moment of silence, Are there any of you who desire tonight to make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life? No matter what shape your life is in. Say, oh, I've made a shambles of my life. That's all right. God's a big God and He's able to, He's able to fix what even you've messed up.